we're going to read from Genesis, first book in the Bible, and chapter 19. Genesis chapter 19, by coincidence, it's on page 19 in the Pew Bibles, if you want to follow in the Pew Bibles. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered, we will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Before they'd gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you and you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men, for they've come under the protection of my roof. Get out of our way, they replied. And they said, this fellow came here as an alien. Now he wants to play the judge. We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. But the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness so that they could not find the door. The two men said to Lot, Do you have anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here, because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against these people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were pledged to marry his daughters. He said, Hurry and get out of this place, because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-laws thought he was joking. With the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, Hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away when the city is punished. When he hesitated, the men grasped his hand and the hands of his wife and of his two daughters and led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. As soon as they had brought them out, one of them said, Flee for your lives, don't look back and don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, No, my lords, please. Your servant has found favor in your eyes, and you have shown great kindness to me in sparing my life. But I can't flee to the mountains. This disaster will overtake me, and I'll die. Look, here is a town near enough to run to, and it is small. Let me flee to it. It is very small, isn't it? Then my life will be spared. He said to him, Very well, I will grant this request too. I will not overthrow the town you speak of, but flee there quickly, because I cannot do anything until you reach it. That is why the town was called Zoar. By the time Lot reached Zoar, the sun had risen over the land. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, including all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. 
Early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he'd stood before the Lord. He looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah, towards all the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land like smoke from a furnace. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham, and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew through the cities where Lot had lived. Lot and his two daughters left Zoar and settled in the mountains, for he was afraid to stay in Zoar. He and his two daughters lived in a cave. One day, the older daughter said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is no man around here to lie with us, as is the custom over the earth. Let's get our father to drink wine and then lie with him and preserve our family line through our father. That night they got their father to drink wine and the older daughter went in and lay with him. He was not aware of it when she lay down or when she got up. The next day the older daughter said to the younger, Last night I lay with my father. Let's get him to drink wine again tonight and you go in and lie with him so that we can preserve our family line through our father. So they got their father to drink wine that night also. And the younger daughter went in and lay with him. Again, he was not aware of it when she lay down or when she got up. So both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father. The older daughter had a son, and she named him Moab. He is the father of the Moabites of today. The younger daughter also had a son, and she named him Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites of today. The TV series and the films were called Sex and the City. And when anybody mentions Sodom and Gomorrah, people assume that they're going to be talking about sex. And that's not surprising. I mean, you've just heard the chapter that we've read. In this chapter, we've got an attempted homosexual gang rape. We've got a father who offers his daughters to the rapists as a way of uh, calming them down. And then we've got daughters who get pregnant by their father. There's a lot of sex in the story. But despite that, when you look at it carefully and in the context of the rest of the Bible, this chapter is not specifically about sex. Sex is not the main sin of Sodom. And sex, whether homosexual sex or any other kind of sexual relationships or activities, is not the reason that God judges and destroys Sodom. We'll see what that is later. Let's be clear, the Bible does have a lot to say about sex, though not as much as some people would think. And we can sum it up fairly simply by saying God created sex to be part of a relationship, a lifelong marriage between one man and one woman. That was God's intention for sex and that it shouldn't be anywhere outside of that. But we all know that in real life relationships are messy. People have sex outside of marriage. Married people commit adultery. Marriages break up, people divorce, people get remarried, sometimes many times. Prostitution is still a thriving industry, even in the 21st century. And pornography is so easily available that even kids can access it. Sexually, this is a messed up world. Nowhere near what God intended. Interestingly, Andy this morning reflected on the fact that Jesus treated people whose relationships were messy with much more care and concern than he treated the religious hypocrites. 
Check it out. Go through the Gospels. Look at the different people Jesus meets. The woman taken in adultery. The woman who had a reputation for immorality. The fact that he was called a friend of prostitutes. Jesus showed compassion on people whose relationships were way, way away from what God intended. And then just have a look and say how he does deal with religious people. It's a lot harder because they needed it, because they were more entrenched in their sin. And so because of the example of Jesus, Muttley Baptist Church is a church that welcomes sinners. And it really doesn't matter what sin you've committed or are committing, Muttley Baptist Church welcomes sinners because there ain't anybody else. If we said, no sinners, on the door there and enforced it, this place would be empty. I wouldn't be here. None of us would be here. There are only sinners. We just have different kinds of sin. The other day, I went to um, Banbury, went to visit Anne Brindley, who was our family's worker here. And across the front of the church that she now works in, it says, no perfect people here. Because there ain't any. And so Muttley Baptist is a church that welcomes sinners. And we seek to support one another, to encourage one another, but also to challenge one another to grow more like Jesus. That's what it's all about. We're all sinful, Christian or non-Christian. We don't become perfect the moment we become a, a Christian, but we start on a journey of becoming more like Jesus. And this church is a place that wants to encourage and support that. Whatever you're involved in, you're welcome. So tonight, we're not looking at sex and the city. We're going to look at three things. We're going to look at sin and the city. We're going to look at seduction and the city. And we're going to look at saints and the city. Okay, I hope that will just make it easy for you to follow. Let's start with sin and the city. What was, what was Sodom like? What kind of place was it? Well, from what we've read in chapter 19, you can see it was not very welcoming to strangers. Actually, that would have been a much bigger deal in those days than it is today. You know, part of the business of Lot offering his daughters was that there was a big thing in those times that if you offered somebody protection under your roof, if you offered them hospitality, you owed a debt to them. You had to protect them. You had to care for them. You had to look after them. It was a big thing. And so actually, that would have been one of the sins that the other people around the area would have felt most strongly about in terms of Sodom. They didn't welcome strangers. They abused strangers. But the best description we have of the sins of Sodom is not in Genesis chapter 19, but it's in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 16 and verse 49. And it says this, Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. The prophet is actually talking to Jerusalem. And he's comparing Jerusalem with Sodom. And saying, you're so alike that it could be your daughter. But what does he say? What sins does he condemn? It's interesting. It's not the sins that you would expect. He starts off, he says, arrogant What that means is the people that said, we're okay and nobody can touch us. Not even God. He said they're overfed. Not everybody in the city, but a good proportion. Rich, 
affluent. They got what they needed and more than they needed. And they're unconcerned. They don't care about those who aren't overfed, those that are hungry, those that are poor, those that are in need. Now, is that what you expected to hear about Sodom? That actually their big sin was that they were overfed, rich, and didn't care for the poor. Hey, because that could be us, couldn't it? You know, if we preached about some kind of sexual stuff, we could probably, many of us have said, oh, well, I don't do that sort of thing. But hey, overfed? Rich? Well, compared with two-thirds of the world, we're incredibly rich sat in this church today, even if you're a student and don't have much or you're unemployed. Caring for the poor? How much do we? One of the great things that's happening in recent years is the church in this country is again learning to care for the poor in all sorts of different ways. That's why churches are prominent in projects like Food Bank. But it hasn't always been the case. If you do church history, you'll see there have been times when the church has been rich and overfed and couldn't care for anybody else. That was the sin of Sodom. He goes on, he says they were haughty. It means they were too proud to need God. And it says, they did detestable things before me. What does that mean? Well, primarily, when the Bible talks about people doing detestable things, it means idol worship. What the sin that he's denouncing in Jerusalem is that they took idols into the temple and worshipped idols alongside of or instead of God. And yes, it was tied up with sexual immorality and drunkenness because that's what the worship of idols involved. That was part of the whole system. It sometimes included human sacrifice. It was dark religion. It's not like a choice of being a Baptist or a Methodist or an Anglican. Idol worship was something dark and sinister and evil. So what was Sodom like? Well, life was cheap in Sodom. It was brutal and violent. Not everybody was counted as a person. You know, we read that bit about Lot saying, well, here you are, I have my daughters, you can rape them instead. And we think, how could any father say that? Well, because in that culture and in that city, daughters were not people. They were property. No different from saying, take my donkey or take my dog or whatever. They were not counted as human beings. Life was cheap. People who were not top people were regarded as rubbish It's the same with that sin at the end. Why is it that Lot's daughters are so obsessed with sleeping with him and producing a child? Well, because they brought up, again, the whole culture of the day, that the only value that women have was to produce children. This is a society which is violent, immoral, uncaring, which worships awful gods and which treats people who are not in the top level as dirt. And actually, most of the cities in Canaan were like that. You think ahead 400 years or so to when Joshua invades Canaan. That was also part of the judgment of God on that culture and that society. Sodom and Gomorrah were simply the worst of those cities. So here's the question. Where is Sodom today? Where would we compare with Sodom? What kind of city are you going to pick I don't know what's going through your mind when you've got an idea. I want to suggest Plymouth. 
Now, if there are any great Plymouth fans here, let me say, I can do that. I'm Plymouth born and bred. I'm allowed to criticize the place. And I'm also really following in the footsteps of Jesus because Jesus made an outrageous comparison. There was a town in Israel called Capernaum. It was really a something and nothing town, kind of place where you, you, know, you might get a few sheep stolen and that was about it. Nobody thought anything about Capernaum. It was at the back of beyond. And Jesus says, Capernaum, you are worse than Sodom and Gomorrah because you have rejected God. So I'm in good company in suggesting that Plymouth may be a good comparison with Sodom. Let me tell you a bit about my part of Plymouth. I live just up the road in Lipson, okay? It's not the roughest area in Plymouth. It's not the poshest area in Plymouth. Let me just tell you a little bit about it. We're on a route home from the city centre. So at night, two in the morning, um, we get a few drunks and a few arguments and a few fights. If street pastors, if you could station somebody there in the evening just to keep that under control, we'd value that. Friday morning, ring at the doorbell, the police were there. Can we search your front garden, please? There was a serious assault last night, and we think the weapon has been thrown into somebody's garden. Well, they'd have found lots of crisp rackers and takeaway cartons and cans, because we're just at the point where everybody finishes eating, and they all chuck it over our hedge. But they they didn't find a weapon. Earlier in the week, one of our local shops was raided by the police. It's a shop that sells so-called legal highs and drug paraphernalia. It was raided by the police who were investigating the death of a man who fell from a window in a block of flats and a couple of people were taken away and charged with drug offences. Right opposite us, on the corner of May Terrace, across from our house, is a place, it's all very nice and tidy now, student accommodation. I don't know if anybody here lives in it. Before they converted it to that, it was a cannabis factory. A bit further down the road, there's a house that turned out to be a brothel that was involved in trafficking Eastern European women. And the prosecutions went through for that about 18 months or so ago. And if you go back a few years, but certainly in the time that we've lived there, the house diagonally opposite was the scene of a murder. Now, actually, our bit of Plymouth, I've never actually counted this, but I'm pretty sure this is true. Our bit of Plymouth has probably got more churches within 10 minutes walking distance of anywhere than anywhere else in the city. We are full of churches. They're everywhere, all kinds, on every corner. But we're no more religious than anybody else. The people who live in my part of Plymouth, like the people who live in your part of Plymouth, have largely rejected God. I don't know what you'd say if you describe the things that go on where you live, but there's all sorts of stuff goes on in every part of the city. And actually, if we went out into the countryside and the towns and the villages and the smaller places, we wouldn't find so much of it, but we'd find the same sins, the same problems, and we would certainly find the same rejection of God. So this story about Sodom and Gomorrah is not a story about 4,000 years ago. This is a story about our city our town, our village, today. So let's just move on. Let's look at seduction and the city. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean that bad places and bad things are hard to leave behind. Did anybody give up anything for Lent? 
Sometimes people do, don't you? And you give up something. Um, and we then find it's actually quite difficult to give up things, unless we choose something easy that we don't really like. But if we give up something that we've got used to, it's quite hard, even for 40 days. Bad places and bad things are hard to leave behind. You see it in the story. Verse 14, the sons-in-law, the guys who are going to marry these two daughters, they're told the city's going to be destroyed. They think it's a big joke. They're not interested in leaving. Verses 15 and 16, Lot, you get, get the sort of impression, Lot's just sort of bumbling about. Now, let's see, what should we put in the bag now? Do I want to take that with me or shall I leave that? You know, he's just bumbling about. He's not rushing. They said, hurry up, hurry up. Come on, the city's going to be destroyed. You know, just imagine, I think, I don't know if it's still there, there's a sort of light at the back of the church which comes on if the building's burning down. It's not on at the moment. But just suppose that came on and I said, we've all got to evacuate the building. And you said, oh, well, hang on, we'll sing a few more hymns first. We'll have a couple of songs. Let's get the worship. No, you wouldn't. You'd be out quick, wouldn't you? Because the building's going to be destroyed. Lot knows that Sodom's going to be destroyed and he's faffing about. Doesn't want to leave. In the end, they have to grab him by the hand and drag him out. When I was in Sunday school, many, many years ago, I was taught that Lot was a bad sort of guy. You know, Abraham was a goodie, and Lot was the baddie, and he chose to go and live with the bad people. Actually, that's not true. You see, we've got a description of Lot, not so much in Genesis, but in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 7 to 8. And what Peter says was, Lot was a righteous man. Now, we need to just explain that a little bit, because the word righteous comes up again and again. It doesn't mean somebody who's perfect. In the Old Testament, particularly in the New Testament as well, a righteous person is someone who seeks to follow and serve God. It's about their aim and their desire in life, not how much they achieve of it. But Lot was a righteous man. He wanted to know God. He wanted to live for God. He wanted to do what God wanted. And it says that he was distressed by what was going on around him in Sodom. But he didn't leave. It was a convenient place to live because of the grazing land all around. And uh, he was a wealthy man. And wealth in those days was not money in the bank. It was sheep and goats and cattle. Something of the city had got into Lot's soul. He's slow to leave. When he gets out, he pleads with the guys, Don't send me to the mountains. Oh, I'm too old and feeble. I can't get to the mountains. Let me go in that little town over there. What he's really saying, I suspect, is... Don't put me out somewhere that I can't cope with. Let me have my comfort and the things that I've got used to living in the city. Did you notice it's a compromise that doesn't last very long because it says a little bit later he had to leave that town, Zor, because it wasn't safe to be there. So he ended up in the mountains, which was where God was sending him in the first place. Better if he'd gone for it when the angels said, And Lot's wife, it's a curious thing, isn't it? Just one of those odd bits that everybody knows, whether they know the Bible or not, that Lot's wife was turned into a pillar of salt. I don't know the chemistry, the geology of that. We know that um, God used earthquake and the, the bitumen pits and the sulfur and all that kind of thing to destroy the cities. And I suspect what happens is this is a bit more than Lot's wife just casually looking over her shoulder. In my imagination, 
I see her turning around and stopping and looking back and maybe remembering what life was like, remembering what she regarded as the good things about it, wondering if she was going to cope in this new life. And because her attention was focused on what she'd been told to leave, she got caught up in the destruction. And we should never underestimate the seductive, enticing power of sin. You see, we talk about sin a lot in churches, and almost as if it's, it's easy, you know. Sometimes I may, be, may have been guilty of this myself, but you, preachers talk about sin as if you can just decide and give it up tomorrow. It's not like that. It's hard. It's difficult. Sin is powerful. It grips us. Different sins for different people. That's what makes it complicated. Because we look at somebody else and we say, oh, well, I wouldn't do what they're doing. No, but we are doing what we are doing. In my own Bible readings each day at the moment, I'm working through the book of Revelation. And I've got up to chapter 16. And chapter 16 is a chapter all about judgment, a bit like Sodom and Gomorrah, where the angels are pouring out the bowls of the plagues of God on the earth. And there's a refrain that comes through the chapter. It says, this happened, but the people cursed God and did not repent. This happened, but the people cursed God and did not repent. God is doing everything he can to grab their attention and say, hey, the end is coming, you need to flee, you need to come back to me, but the people cursed God and did not repent because there's a seductive power in sin that grips us. Again this morning, Andy mentioned the phrase, love the sinner and hate the sin. And that's a good thing. But you first of all got to start off by hating your own sin. Because when we hate our own sin, and we realize that we are hurting God, and we are messing up, and that we nailed Jesus onto the cross, and yet we still commit the same sin day after day, after day, then we have a lot more sympathy with others who are struggling with sins. It's easy for us to focus on the things we don't do and think how good we are. We need to hate the sin that is our particular sin. What a previous generation used to call a besetting sin. The thing that's particularly our problem. It could be pride. It could be selfishness. It could be laziness. It could be something far bigger in human terms. Whatever it is, hate it fight it and encourage others in the same way well let's come on to the final point saints and the city Okay. if Plymouth is as bad as Sodom what should we do, leave? well not really because where is there to go to? you see everywhere is much the same in fact God has planned for Christians to be in bad places. God has placed you and me in Plymouth at this time, whether you're here temporarily or whether you lived here long term. He's placed us here for a purpose, to redeem the city. We are to be, as Jesus put it, salt and light. We're to bring health and we're to dispel darkness right here. 
Now, it's no good being light in a place that isn't dark, if you could find such a place. You've got to be in the midst of all that's going on to bring light and to bring salt. When God sent his people into exile in Babylon, Jeremiah the prophet said to them, Seek the peace and prosperity of the city. Hey, Babylon was the enemy of God. And yet Jeremiah says, work hard to make it a better place because that's God's purpose. Whether you are here temporarily or whether you live here permanently, do you know that if you're a Christian, Plymouth is not your home? Nor is anywhere else on earth. The writer to the Hebrews says, for here we do not have an enduring city, but we're looking for the city that is to come. In other words, we're exiles like those Jews in Babylon. We're like Abraham who didn't have a city of his own. We're here temporarily. So the question is, what do we do living as saints in the city, in the city of Plymouth, in the city of Sodom? I'll try and sum it up in two things. And the first one is this, live the Jesus life. You see, everything else depends on that. You know the biggest criticism that's always made of Christians and the church? They're a bunch of hypocrites. And the sad thing is, it's often been true. We have preached one message and we've lived something completely different. Now, you'll already have got the impression we are not perfect. Of course we all sin. Of course there's things messed up in our lives. There's often stuff in our lives that we nobody ever knows about, though God knows it and loves us still. But we are to live as people who love Jesus. We're to pray and to worship and read the Bible and stay close to Jesus. That's the foundation of it. We're to struggle with those sins that trouble us and model our lives on Him. And we're to do it together. Do you know that's one of the reasons God's put us into church? Because you can't do it on your own. There's no such thing as a solitary Christian. God has put us together to encourage, support, build up one another. The shame of the church is so often we knock one another down because we accept the sins that are okay by us and we don't like certain other sins. And we are to live the Jesus life by living for others especially the poor and the needy. You remember the parable of the sheep and the goats? And Jesus says, what you've done in caring for the people in prison and the homeless and the naked and the hungry, you have done for me. And what you haven't done for them, you haven't done for me. So there's the first thing. If we're going to live in a city which is not our home and a city which is sinful, we need to live the Jesus life. Because if people don't see it in us, they're not going to listen to our words. You can stand up and preach forever and a day. Nobody's going to pay any attention unless you live the life. I think it's fantastic some of the stuff that God has been doing in the church over the last 20 or 30 years in bringing into being projects that care for people. Some of you who are younger may not sort of believe this, but you know, 50 years ago, it was a heresy in the church to talk about caring for people. It was called the social gospel. And evangelicals didn't do it. Only liberals who don't believe the Bible did that sort of thing. And that's rubbish. 
because the command has always been to preach the truth and live the truth. And the command to care for the poor goes right through the Bible from beginning to end. And we have to live that. I've said this before, but it's an illustration worth repeating. Do you know there is one denomination in the Christian church that nobody really ever criticizes? Do you know what it is? It's the Salvation Army. Why? Because they have a fantastic reputation that's undeniable for caring for people. Yes, people take the mickey about the hats and the tambourines and all that kind of stuff, but in an affectionate way. They don't come under attack because they have proved themselves by living for others. That's what every Christian needs to do. But then, as well as living the Jesus life, we have to share the message of judgment and mercy. That gives us a problem, doesn't it? Because people will say, how can a God of love bring judgment and punishment? Not easy answers to that, and we certainly don't have time to go into it in great detail tonight. But let me just suggest a few things. First, because God is a love, a God of love, justice, truth, mercy, holiness, and all sorts of other characteristics. It's not love full stop. This love is overarches all that God is, surrounds all that God is, fills up all that God is, but there are other aspects to God that are all equally part of him. He is a God of judgment who is true and fair. And God always gets it right. That's what last week's story was about, you know, about will you spare the city if there are so many righteous men? God is going down there to check out that he's got it spot on. There's never any injustice with God. You know, you sometimes we get cases in the paper, don't we, where Uh, somebody's gone to prison and they come up on appeal and they are released because there was something wrong with the trial. Never anything like that with God. We say also that judgment is a consequence of sin. In one sense, we, everybody in the world, bring judgment on ourselves because of our sins, because of our actions. And we ought to just make a little caution here and say not every bad thing that happens in the world is a judgment of God. It's very easy, and some preachers do this, to point the finger and say, look, that happened over there, that's a judgment because they did such and such. We don't know that. Listen to Jesus in Luke's Gospel. Luke chapter 13. Verse 1, now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, do you think those Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will perish. Don't make the mistake of seeing bad things happen and think bad things only happen to bad people. They don't. They happen everywhere. But they should point us towards God and towards repentance. You see, what's the atheist got to say about the bad things that happen in the world? This is one of the big problems with atheism. If you want a a philosophy to live by and something that's going to strengthen you and uphold you to go through difficult times, what has the atheist got to say about bad things, about disasters, about tragedy? All they can say is they just happen and there's no meaning and purpose to them. That's not a philosophy I'd like to live with. 
That's not a philosophy that brings hope. The Bible says that even the worst tragedy is under the control and the authority of God. Whether that's an act of judgment on the part of God or just one of those things that sin brings about, it's under the control and the authority of God. We can't see how that works out often, whether it's a personal tragedy that happens to us or our family, whether it's a big tragedy that affects a whole community. We can't work out the details, but we believe it's under the control and the authority of God, and that brings hope. One of the biggest tragedies that happened to the people of Israel in biblical times was they were sent into exile in Babylon. And while in Babylon, somebody, possibly Jeremiah, reflected on what they'd been through. And this is what he wrote. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall, and most of what he's writing is the negative stuff, the awful things that had happened. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Did you know when you sing that hymn, Great is Your Faithfulness, it comes from a poem talking about atrocities that happened when the Babylonians invaded Israel? Hey, if there's no meaning and there's no purpose, there's no hope. If God is acting in sovereign power and justice, there is hope. You see, there is a final judgment coming, but now is the time of mercy. Today is the day of salvation because on the cross Jesus faced the judgment of God. That's why the heavens darkened and Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How could the Father forsake the Son because the Son accepted the judgment of God? On the cross Jesus died in our place, my place, your place. On the cross Jesus bore my sin, your sin. He was made sin for us. And in the resurrection, God shows that that sacrifice was accepted. Today is the day of salvation. It's the day of mercy. And so, yes, in our conversations and in our preaching to a certain extent, we need to warn people about sin and judgment. But gently and carefully aware of their own failure. There were two Christians talking one time, and one said to the other, believe you've got a new minister in your church. What's he like? And the other said, oh, well, he's quite good. What does he preach about? Well, he preaches about sin and judgment. Um, But he's much better than the previous guy. They said, well, what did the previous guy preach about? They said, well, he preached about sin and judgment. Well, if this guy preached about sin and judgment and your new guy preached about sin and judgment, how is he so better? They said, well, the new guy preaches with tears in his eyes. You see, there's no pride in telling people about sin and judgment, just heartbreak. We need to tell people that we live in a time of mercy. We need to proclaim loudly the mercy of God. Just imagine in that story, suppose the sons-in-law had given a different response and said, hey, yeah, we believe you, we're going to leave. Just give us a minute, we'll tell our friends. And they told their friends, and they told their friends, would God have let the whole city go? Yes, he would. Because he did it 1,200 years later when a guy called Jonah went to Nineveh and preached judgment and the people repented and the city was spared. God always wants to offer mercy. The only thing that stops it is we won't take it. So let's live and share and gossip and preach the love, mercy and grace of God.
to our city and pray that people will turn to God and be saved. For God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn, to judge the world, but to save the world through him. What about you tonight as we finish? Maybe you need to meet with Jesus. Yeah, you're in church and maybe you're coming for a while, but you don't actually know Jesus. You never experience the forgiveness of your sin. You've never realized that he died on the cross for you. You can know him and meet him tonight. Maybe you are a Christian, but you struggle with sin. And there are things that you do that you're ashamed of, and you think that maybe God doesn't want to have anything to do with you. That's not true. God loves you, whatever you do. You think maybe that if you told other people in the church, they wouldn't have anything to do with you. I pray and believe that's not true either. Whether you need to meet with Jesus for the first time or whether you need help with your struggle with sin, come to the front at the end of the service. There'll be people here who will not condemn you, who will not criticize and pick holes in you, but people who will pray for you and encourage you and support you. Don't hesitate like Lot because there's a little voice saying, I can do that some other time. Don't put it off. The Bible says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And the answer is we won't. If we put it off, if we leave it, it may be gone. If you need to do business with God tonight, then do it. Because he's waiting for you. Because he loves you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, it's hard to think about judgment and punishment. It's hard to think about the terrible things that happen in our world. But Father, we thank you that though we don't understand how it can be, you are in control and that you work things for good and that you always are holding out the offer of mercy and forgiveness. We pray for our city of Plymouth, for all that's going on in it. Father, will you, through, through us here in this church, through Christians in churches throughout the city, help people to see Jesus in us. Give us the words to share the good news. But Father, if there's things in our lives that we need to deal with tonight, if we need to meet with you, we need to deal with issues that have been troubling us, help us to take courage and to do it now. And to seek help from brothers and sisters here who love us and will care for us. In Jesus' name, amen.